Where do the roots of comics stand in regards to other forms of media? Well, you know, there's the roots of what we know as comics today. Probably go back to um, the uh, the 19th century, humor magazines, and you know, you probably the line gets progressively thinner. The causal line going back to Topfer, and then it kind of stops. Um, so, as far as the continuity roots, you know, as far as the connectedness. Um, I often look for roots of the the formal qualities of comics and all of these comics predecessors, these proto comics um, that you know that come up a lot. Certain Egyptian wall paintings, things like the Bayou Tapestry or Trajan's Column or whatever. But those are formal distinctions. There's no causal chain. So I mean, I think that that if if you're looking for a family tree, I think you you have stuff that was going on uh, in Europe. Um, Topper being about the earliest example of this idea of stringing cartoons in a row to tell a story, and then um, and then it starts to get more solid and more of a continuous chain of influences. You know, with the humor magazines and going into America's uh, explosion of comics at the beginning of last century, and from then on, you can you can sort of see, yeah, this person learned from this person, learned from this person. It's- Specifically, other people have mentioned the Bayou Tapestry setting that you see it as a form of comics within comics. Mm-hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, well, basically, I I think of comics at their heart as being this sort of value-neutral distinction of, of putting pictures of sequence to tell a story, um, and I think it's I think it's helpful to look at them as as separate from their their uh, you know historical, cultural context just for the purpose of understanding that there's this art form that stands separate from the culture. Um, it doesn't mean that the culture doesn't exist, but simply that that just like prose could be seen as a series of cultural influences and traditions, it can also just be seen as the art of making, uh, you know, making marks or representing, you know, language through a series of sounds or symbols, um, you know, just packing that packing that down, then, then you can look and you can see if, if a civilization had cropped up out of nowhere um, a million years ago, and they started making marks and telling stories to each other, and then were completely extinguished, and if they had no causal uh, chain or link to any subsequent uh, civilizations, we could still look at that and say, oh, they discovered the written word, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, and so that's essentially what I'm doing, and I think it's useful on a few different fronts. Um, first of all, it's, it's helpful to look at these other forms and say, ah, here are people who've encountered this basic idea of telling stories with pictures, and they have some really cool ideas about how to go about it. Uh, and they don't have the assumptions that we have. They don't have the assumption that it needs to be broken up into these rectangles or that it needs to, to follow a grid or something like that. Um, they also have things in common that I thought uh, were, were useful when imagining future forms of comics. Like, I, I like the spatial continuity, the fact that all these preprint comics that I came across, they always followed this basic idea that um, adjacent moments and adjacent spaces were the same. So you, you followed this uh, unbroken reading line, something that we don't have so much in print. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Let's do this in, in digital comics. You know, once we're past print, let's see if we can, um, you know, recapture some of that. Um, and then it's just in, in expanding our understanding of the art form going backwards, it, it helps us expand our understanding of the artwork going forward or in the present and it helps us to look at something like airline safety cards or stained glass windows showing stations of the cross and say oh i get it they're doing the same thing 
Um, and and so, you know, we can. The more different ways that people have imagined this art form, uh, the more uh, different examples or different viewpoints on the art form that we can learn from. Now, this might be a loaded question to be asking you, and feel free to just say pass. Um, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> considering you've got three books on it, uh, how do comics work? Uh, yes, that is a big question. <laughs> um, comics work through an understanding between the artist and the reader that that visual symbols can do more than just represent things and people. Visual symbols can also represent abstract notions like time um, or language. And in comics, we pretty much use them all and, uh, and represent this, this, this uh, you know, map of experience. Um, and they take advantage of this really extraordinary thing that we have inside our skulls that can take little fragments, little representations of the way we live or just the, the whole business of existing and thinking and feeling and, and uh, somehow construct an, con an entire continuous experience out of it. And, and one of the most important things that comics highlights is the fragmentary nature, nature of experience. Something like film, even though it's, it's, it chops up life in a lot of ways due to things like editing, nevertheless it's a more continuous experience where our experience of motion and the passage of time is pretty much automatic through, you know, it's a series of very quickly uh, uh, projected or, or, or shown images. We get, we get a sense of fluid motion. But um, in comics, it's much more fragmented. We just get little pieces. And so we have to construct this whole universe out of it. But that's the way our brains work anyway, in the sense that even in life, we only see little slices of the world, the inside of a room or the back of someone's head or uh, just a piece of the road around us as we're driving. And yet we're always making it whole. We're always understanding the world as a whole, continuous place, even though we're only seeing it through a, a keyhole. Um, and so I, I like the way that comics mimics that ability and depends on that ability on the part of the reader. So this is this really cool partnership between uh, the artist and the reader. What were the strengths of um, early comics and also their weaknesses? Now, how early? <laughs> Are we talking about 3,000 years ago or <laughs> the beginning of the 20th century? I would say the beginning of the 20th century or end of the 19th century. Yeah, right. Well, let's, let's go back to sort of the Big Bang. America's Big Bang, of course, was the, was the newspapers when newspaper or comics started showing up. That's when we, when we saw a lot of really exciting early work um, from people like Winston McKay, uh, Frank King, or, or um, uh, George Harriman. And um, isn't it weird? Suddenly, I'm, it is George, right? <laughs> it doesn't sound right. Yeah, no, it's George. Yeah, it's George. <laughs> I don't know why. His, his name just sounded wrong to me. Um, uh, and I think that at the very beginning, when something is fairly new, or at least when it feels new, um, people do have an instinct to want to explore. They want to just see the far corners of it. And I think people like McKay did that, did that wonderfully. Um, in many cases, the exploration was kind of the point. I think if you look at something like Little Nemo, you realize that his primary goal was to say, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can show you this, I can show you this, 
I can show you this. He didn't have a particularly sophisticated narrative in mind. He wasn't he wasn't writing Moby Dick. He was just he was just like, let's go to a new place. How about if everybody gets big? Look, mountains. <laughs> you know, which which is um, which means that you know, as far as its literary ambitions, that they were kind of off the table. It wasn't really the point. Um, the point was that yes, I can make beautiful things. And these beautiful things can be sent far and wide, can be printed up in editions of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies and read at the breakfast table, and that's really, really cool. Um, and then there was a sense, I think many comics historians have this sad sense that at a certain point, um, perhaps even coinciding with uh, the invention of comic books, that our ambitions were scaled down a little, um, that the comic strips became more and more compressed and adolescent, or not adolescent, excuse me, that was the province of comic books, but uh, more um, bland. And um, and the idea of just simply giving somebody a laugh, you know, or something to pin on a refrigerator eventually, um, became its only purpose. And then the comic books, uh, we're seen as having progressively narrower audiences. Uh, I have to say, though, as much as I love that period at the very beginning of the last century, uh, as much as I admire uh, the masters from that period, I don't think of that as a high watermark. I think the high watermark is now. And I think that what we're doing, both in terms of artistic exploration and maybe even more importantly, in terms of advancing the the potential of comics as a literature, I think what we're doing now exceeds anything that's been done previously. The last 15 years uh, just knocks the previous 100 years on its ass. I, I won't argue that at all. <laughs> Was there central use for comics at that point in time? There were, um, well, there, again, it depends on how you define uses. <laughs> I mean, you know, is, is just entertaining somebody you use? I think you could probably make a pretty strong case that it is. Um, I mean, it's, it has a practical effect, you know, of, of, uh, of relaxing somebody or, you know, waking them up or whatever. Um, uh, as far as more practical use, are you thinking in terms of things like education or...? Like, how, why, why were these comics being made? You well, know? Well, in the, at the very beginning, they were made to sell newspapers, no question about it. Um, that was that early, what I think of as the shotgun marriage between an art form and an industry um, that remained in effect for many, many years, despite a kind of a dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, we I don't know who knocked up who, but, I mean, that's that was its basic use. And this notion of... I mean, you know, I, I don't even know if we would formulate the question, what were the uses of painting mm -hmm. in the 20th century? Would we even think to say that? You know, so I, I think in many ways it, it underlies the, the sort of very broad, um, common assumption that, that, that comics were, um, were sort of more a utility, that, that as a commercial art form, that they were just meant to accomplish a purpose and get out of the way. Um, and that the idea of simply being for their own sake of existing as a form of expression uh, was somehow uh, unavailable to, to comics. I d obviously, I don't think that that's true. Um, 
and, and we did see a sense of self-expression in those early comics, especially Crazy Cat, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, which you know really holds up quite well as a form of self-expression. But but gradually the assumption settled in that that comics were only useful as entertainment, um, and uh, and we've had flickers of you know moments of people realizing that that was not true throughout the last century and this century. Uh, but I think that, that, that the assumption that comics can be used for multiple uses and for self-expression and for teaching and for education and for all these different audiences, that, that again, is a, I think it's only recently that that became um, a more common view on the part of educators, on the part of librarians, um, on the part of institutions. That's now a much easier sell than it used to be. But there were people like Will Eisner who understand it, stood it all along. I mean, you know, who advocated the notion of comics as literature, who advocated the idea of comic teaching things. I mean, you know, Will was a, a pioneer in the use of comics as uh, nonfiction for the army, um, and then you know others others came along who also felt that. But that's another. I think that's another iceberg that we've only seen the tip of. That's another extended conversation. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. I, I think I almost feel like you answered my next question is uh, how did that change with time? Yeah, well, basically, I, you know, I believe the truth is its own advocate, but it really helps to have people out there on the stump, you know, calling out the strengths of of comics. Um, but uh, but I do think that guys like me who make a lot of noise about what comics can do, we can make a little progress, but um, it only really works if you if you have demonstrations of the principle, and that's where. People like Art Spiegelman or Chris Ware or Marjan Satrapi have have made the most progress by simply making comics that prove the point. Um, you know, if there had never been a comic that aspired to higher literary ambitions, you could still say that comics could. You could still go out there and say comics can aspire to higher literary ambitions, uh, and you'd be right. But until there's one that really proves it, it's just hollow. It's just talk. It's just talk. And when in 1993, when I was saying that and understanding comics, uh, I think to many, ex- to to a large extent, it was just talk, mm-hmm. because people looked around and just saw a whole lot of junk. And that's why I thought it was important to separate form from content. Um, one of my many semiotic crimes, but <laughs> I thought that it was nevertheless it was important to see that to, to take a moment and understand that you cannot really define a form entirely by its content. And that, that's something for me, just as a side, not really part of this, is sometimes I try to explain in kind of academic context where in some ways understanding comics represents a point in time, but in a lot of ways comics had shifted so much from the early 90s to now. Like it's It has. It, it's not the same media to me in a lot of ways. Like there's Chris Ware now, there's... <laughs> Which is the market itself. I mean, graphic novels were an anomaly in those days, and webcomics were just, uh, uh, were, I mean, <laughs> there were no webcomics <laughs> when I wrote Understanding Comics. Um, there was BBSs with Yeah, right, pictures. exactly. People were uploading old Lois Lane covers to CompuServe, but, um, uh, you know, the web itself began in 89, I believe it was, but uh, the visual web really began with... Uh, the, mo- the browser mosaic, and that wasn't until about six months after my book was published. So that entire history was after that. But I'll tell you, I'm, I was so I was so happy, gratified that I hadn't tied comics to paper in any way, shape, or form. 
in understanding comics. I explicitly said that it wasn't about paper and ink. And so I really, I, I felt that the web was this gargantuan pat on the back for that decision. <laughs> <laughs> like, you go, McLeod. <laughs> you could have fallen flat. <laughs> yeah, like I opened a barn door the size of Texas and, and, and in rushed 10,000 webcomics. And more every day. And more every day. There's more, I think there's more people uh, making new webcomics sometimes than many comics. Well, yeah, probably right now. I mean, that's the numbers. Well, no, there's, there's no probably to it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that would be right. <laughs> how do modern comics... Um, my mic really sounds bad. Uh, how do modern comics compare with early examples? Uh, is it a continuation? Yeah, well, I mean, anything... And again, assuming that by early you mean the early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, there's all there's continuity all the way. There is all the you know there's. I don't know. You pluck out the early 20th century, and pretty much everything else blinks out like Christmas lights. But, but, um, but still, there are some things that are directly influenced, and then other things that are much more indirectly influenced. Japan is a good example of what I think of as sort of the Galapagos principle, or or Madagascar. You know these these uh, waterlocked islands where. Uh, plants and animals evolved for such a long time in relative isolation from from uh, other continents that they just don't look like anything else. You know, in 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 Japan, you could you can look at Tezuka, and you can say, oh wow, he was looking at Walt Disney films, <laughs> right? You know, it's it's obvious. You know, with the big eyes, this stuff looks like Bambi or Dumbo or whatever. But the guy was so far ahead of that, and he, and his imagination. That the, 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 the elements of the of his imagination that came from him dwarfed whatever little bits and pieces he might have gotten from from Walt Disney, such that he was pretty much an original creature. And then the industry that he helped to influence, and in many ways gave birth to, even though there were comics before Tezuka, but mm -hmm. but uh, but he really gave birth to what we think of as the manga revolution. Um, it, that was pretty much a Japan-based revolution. It wasn't until you got to Akira or, or people like Miyazaki that you started to see uh, uh, some European influences. And there were a lot of decades in between there. Um, and sure enough, manga just doesn't... It, 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 in, in manga in, in 1985 um, or so, uh, when I was doing, you know, thought or whatever, um, it was pretty much an island. Japan was an island. On a side note, it's interesting reading um, Tetsumi's book and just seeing yeah. that firsthand how important Tezuka was to him. Yeah, as a young man. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating when he's talking about how many comics Tezuka had already produced. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the guy was still in medical school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, Tezuka and Chris Ware, those are the two cartoonists that the more you learn about, the more you just hang your head in shame. <laughs> like, I suck. I am never going to do anything. These guys, oh. You can't do that. I know. It's like, uh, you know, listening to the Beatles, like, I just can't make music now. It's just <laughs> That's right, there, was, there was actually a composer when um, Wagner came along. There was, there's at least one well-known composer who was just like, fuck it, I'm not making music anymore. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> 
Now, do you see a differentiation between editorial strips, comic strips, and comic books? Well, yeah, they're all... Um, and by editorial strips, you mean editorial cartoons? Yeah, like one panel. Yeah, you see, I'm going to get all nerdy on your ass. Oh, you? that's not I, a I was strip. waiting for this. <laughs> that, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, well, um, you know, editorial cartoonists are are sort of defined by the fact that they use cartoons to talk about politics, and most of the time they just you, you know just do one picture. Um, so they're not using comics necessarily. But you know, it's not a it's not a big distinction. It doesn't mean that you know, like, oh, you can't come through the fence, you know. You can't come into our clubhouse or whatever. You know, like, well, so they do a couple of pictures in a row. It's like, oh, they did, com they did a little comic today. Um, I know people, like, freak out about that. It's like, are you saying there are comics one day and then not comics the next? It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so? <laughs> it's like, it would be like if they did a silent picture one day and then they added some words the next day. I would say, they use words today. Yesterday, they didn't use words. <laughs> It's like the world's not going to end. These are guys, and this is true of Gary Larson, this is true of, this was probably, presumably true of guys like Charles Adams, Bill Keane. If you ask them, what do you do for a living? They'll say, I'm a cartoonist. You know? And then if you said, um, you know, well, do you make comics? They might say, well, I guess. Uh, but, you know, well, whatever. We just call them cartoons. Because <laughs> they don't care. You know, like... Sure, I guess it's all comics, because it's all on the comics page, but they're not really... This is not something that they're going to be, like, up in arms and carrying placards and burning me in effigy. If McLeod says we're not comics, they don't care. <laughs> they're cartoonists. You know? <laughs> I mean, sure, different people have different definitions for comics. There are always different definitions for all kinds of things. Um, you know, com their comics are... Uh, they are an art form. Comics are also a particular category of um, publishing. Comics are these stapled magazines that you put superheroes in. Comics are a section of the newspaper. And comics are people who stand up and tell jokes at little clubs in New York. Words have different meanings. But I discovered that there was something really cool that people were already calling comics, and I brought attention to it, and that's telling stories through pictures. So you feel that one panels? I don't think that there. I don't think that uh, somebody who does somebody who does single panel cartoons. I don't think is using the art of comics as I understand it. Um, but it's not. <laughs> it's <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> and I don't really think they care particularly about that semantic difference. But if they but if they say you know like, yeah, I do comics for a living. I'll just nod and smile on, you know, if I'm sitting next to them on the airplane. I don't, like, bring out my little black book and whack them on the head with it or anything. <laughs> so it's like, okay, they're, I guess they're using the word differently than me. It's not a big deal. <laughs> now, I have two questions of um, comics within larger media context. Yeah. Um, one of them will probably make it grown. Uh, it makes a lot of people groan, but it is an important question. Sure. Are you going to ask the movie question? No. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, that's not even a factor in anything I'm doing. Oh, okay. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Then. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, side note, you know, Art Spiegelman came to Vancouver last year and did a little talk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, time for about five questions. Three of them are about movies. No, oh, that's sad. That's like, did he handle them 
graciously, though. I'll bet he did. Yeah, I mean, he has a pre-prepared answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... Does, does he have... Oh, no, I'm... We won't talk about this. <laughs> no, I was going to ask questions, but I'd say, wait, this is being recorded. I'm not going to be grilling you on Art's, Art's appearance. I've seen Art speak a couple of times. He's, um... He's really terrific. We can ask after... I mean, I'm going to cut this part out. It's okay. <laughs> pretty inconsequential, but after another question, you can ask me what you want to ask about his, uh... Appearance here. Um, the first, I guess I'll go by timeline. The first is uh, where does Wortham's studies on juvenile delinquency belong in the development of the medium? <laughs> what does a car accident <laughs> belong, <laughs> you know, in the development of a drunk teenager? I, you know, that's, oh, I, I like that metaphor actually because that puts the blame on both sides, doesn't it? Um, no, it was, it was bad. I, you know, I, I see Wordham's. I see the whole Wordham period as, as basically he was an, an opportunistic infection. You know, with people like people with compromised immune systems get pneumonia, and and it knocks them for a loop. Um, that's what happened. The compromised immune system was the broad assumption that comics were semi-literate, kitty fair. So all you have to do is come in and say, ah, and they're and they're obscene and evil semi-literate children's fair. It's like, oh, okay, well, they put rat poison in the baby food, time to, time to uh, get angry. And, um, you know, but if, if, if it was established in advance, if people understood that comics were like prose or movies, that you could do uh, good stuff with them, um, that you could uh, aspire to the same heights as in other art forms, then Wordham wouldn't have gotten as much traction. But uh, we were an immature industry, we're an immature art form, and so it was possible for others to define us. So um, I don't, recently Wordham has been, I think, given a pass by some historians, and I know they've done some good scholarship on this, and I don't want to slight that, nor do I want to claim that I've gone over it with a fine-tooth comb. But there were a couple of things that Wordham did that I think I'm willing to just consign him to hell for those alone. Um, gross misreadings of some noble attempts to do something more with comics, especially one one regarding race relations that I thought um, Wardham's description of was so blatantly, libelously um, wrong. He must have known. He must have known that he was lying to condemn both the work of art and the people who created it. And I say, fuck him for all eternity. <laughs> for that. I, don't, I don't care what else he did. I don't care what other motives he may have had. He does not get off, ever, uh, simply for having done that alone. Uh, but again, I don't, you know, that's not to say that, that dip, taking a broader view of Wordham isn't... Um, isn't in some way um, um, useful or you know or proper. Uh, you know this this is not to uh, in any way denigrate more recent scholarship and people who are trying to understand Wordham with a more dispassionate air. But you know, you know, I could understand. I mean, it it would be helpful to understand the Middle East with a more dispassionate air, but I can also forgive people whose family members may have been blown up by a, a, a bomb or a missile 
why they might be not in a mood <laughs> to to forgive and and uh, I consider you know people who who've worked to improve comics over the year they're my family so fuck anyone who who blows them up I've I've never heard you so um it's like your blood's boiling yeah no <laughs> it's just like this guy does not get off I'm sorry I'm like I'm the witness I'm the guy who shows up you know the family member who shows up at the hearing the parole hearing yeah <laughs> like he's basically you've got the photos yeah it's be, right I got the photos <laughs> the family photos <laughs> maybe a little picture of Bollywood looking sad yeah <laughs> the and it, this kind of follows up um and this is the one that makes people groan and it kind of makes me groan but I'm asking anyways um when looking at the Muhammad's comic controversy hmm. is that an isolated incident or does it hold a place in the greater scope of the medium well there are I think there are issues that are comic specific they're about the form and then there are issues that in which comics um, has common cause with other art forms other forms of expression and this is one of those um, it's just a it's a free speech issue far as I'm concerned um, and I, I do fall on the free speech side of that I thought there was a very interesting debate between I believe it was Art Spiegelman and Joe Sacco do you remember this? that was the one they did in Chicago their talk I think yeah I think it, where they, well, no I believe it was long distance I don't oh, think okay. they were together um, but both of them had weighed in on the on the Mohammed cartoons that Spiegelman had taken the, the free speech um, uh, position um and uh, and uh, Joe, if it was Joe, I think he he had he had talked about cultural sensitivity and, and sort of the other side of the coin, mm -hmm. and made some very good points, of course. But um, but I do I do tend to fall more on the extreme free speech side. In fact, I, I'm very uncomfortable with hate speech laws. Hate speech laws are essentially thought control laws. They 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 are declaring some thoughts bad thoughts, and uh, I don't think that's the place of government. I think it's appropriate to um, to condemn as an individual things that you consider hate speech, but uh, I uh, I don't like uh, any sort of coercive techniques for suppressing speech, even even abhorrent speech. Okay. So yeah, it has nothing to do with the, you know. Basically, to answer your question, it has to do with speech and expression. And comics is part of the great broad tapestry of human expression. Uh, this is one of the times when when it overlaps with that cause. Same way with the internet. You know, I in the evolution of of comics on the internet, I saw the aesthetic questions uh, having to do with comics' core identity, and I saw the questions of distribution and the connection with the audience as as a case where comics was simply one of many media that were going through similar changes. <laughs> 